0: Chapter 20 of the Old Tobacco Shop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Tobacco Shop by William Bowen. Chapter 20 The City of Towers. At the Pirate's Cave, the task of getting out the treasure proved very difficult, but it was done at last. The Committee's camp in the forest had supplied abundance of provisions, and a great number of animals the committee traveled in luxury. On the level ground where Mr. Hanlon had given his exhibition of headwork, the toilers were now resting in the hot sun and drying their garments, thoroughly soaked by their trips in and out of the cave, under the waterfall. They looked with intense delight on the boxes and bags which lay before them. "'What I say is,' said Toby, "'let's divide the treasure now, so we won't have to bother about it when we get to the City of Towers.' "'How beautiful is nature!' said the sly old codger. "'Behold that wide, expanse of field and forest "'resting so, so expansively beneath the orb of day! "'A true, true work of nature! "'At such a moment as this, dear friends, "'a warm feeling invades my heart, "'a feeling of, of... "'Did I hear a suggestion to divide the treasure?' "'The division was carefully made, "'and when it was done, "'and each person had declared himself well satisfied,' each share was packed separately and the treasure loaded on the backs of the extra mules it was a princely fortune do you suppose said the old codger with the wooden leg that er i shall be able to obtain in the city of towers such a thing as a pipeful <clears throat> a pipeful of tobacco never fear said the third vice president i fancy you will be able to buy there all the tobacco you can use "'Wary sorry I am to ear it,' said Mr. Punch. "'I regard the tobacco abbot as a wary, reprehensible abbot. Wary.' "'Oh, you do,' said Toby, glaring at him. "'Wary, reprehensible indeed,' went on Mr. Punch calmly. "'My conscience, has troubled me for a long time "'by reason of my position in the tobacco trade, "'being posted, as one may say, "'in a wary, advantageous position for observation, "'I have seen too much.' entirely too much of the sad effects of the hobnoxious weed. Many a time have I wept to myself, when the observer may have thought it was only rain on me cheek, to see em, young and hold, going in and out of Toby Littleback's shop, knowing what would come of it sooner or later, and me a-standin' there hen of of in, as one must say, with me packet of cigars in me and often enough have i wished to give it up and embark on a occupation less reprehensible many a time have i said to myself ho if i could only be innocent once just once and now i shall put behind me all the deeds of my sinful past and with my share of the treasure i shall open a shop for the purveying of tripe there's a deal more harm been done by tripe than ever there was by tobacco said toby "'There is a total absence of nicotine in tripe,' said Mr. Punch, loftily. "'At least such is my information. "'And I can't help hoping that my friend Littleback will reform himself "'now that he can afford it, "'and engage in some pursuit less armful to the young. "'If I was asked, I would suggest pinking and pleading.' "'You ain't been asked,' said Toby. "'I can see myself pinking and pleading. "'When I want advice what to do with my money,' I'll ask you. Tobacco is my line, and tobacco is going to be my line to the end of the chapter, and that's flat. Pinking and pleading. Humph. It's my belief, said the church warden, after listening to what's been said, pro and con, backwards and forwards, up and down, that if we don't start for the city of towers, we'll never get there. And what's more, said Toby, when I get back, I'm going to have an Indian outside my door instead of a tripe seller." "'Excuse me,' said the third vice-president. "'I am sorry to interrupt this interesting discussion, "'but we really ought to be going. "'Gentlemen,' to the committee, "'our steeds are waiting. "'To the City of Towers!' "'The journey, which now commenced, "'proved to be a very long one. "'Day after day the pilgrims plodded "'through a wilderness of forest and field, "'over streams, across mountains, "'down into deep valleys and up again,' camping at night wherever they happened to find water and wood, and sleeping under the stars in blankets on beds of boughs. The moon was gone before their journey was over. One morning the trail brought them down on a mountainside to a well-paved road. This road they followed for some hours, and it brought them finally to the top of a gentle hill, covered with trees. From the top of this hill they saw a striking scene. Stretching away from the foot of the hill, lay a great rolling valley, up which the road ran as straight as a ribbon. Far away, at the end of the road, against a dark wooded mountain, stood a great city, walled around with a high wall, and shining in the sun with white and gold domes and turrets and towers. The rear of the city rose along the lower slope of the mountain, and on the top of the mountain, concealing its peak, lay a cloud, black below, and glittering with sunlight at the edges, It hung there motionless during the time when the watchers sat watching the scene. Directly under the cloud, on the slope where the farthest portion of the city lay, was an open space among the buildings, like a great garden or park, and in the midst of it a vast white building with a flat roof, great enough for the palace of a king. That which struck the strangers most, at their first look, was the great number of towers which rose at all points in the city, Surely so many towers had never been gotten together in one place before, and the most remarkable one of them was the tower which rose from just behind the great white building in the park. It was dull in color and doubtless of brick. It was round in shape, tapering gradually upwards. It rose to a height which none of the strangers would have thought possible, had they not seen it with their own eyes. It rose straight to the cloud which hung motionless upon the mountain. It pierced the cloud— "'and its top was lost to view in the cloud or above it. "'The City of Towers,' said the third vice-president, "'waving his arm in that direction. "'The Gate of Wanderers is before us, at the end of the road.' "'The party urged their animals forward down the hillside, "'and pressed on until noon, "'when they halted, for rest and refreshment, "'in a wood beside the road. "'There they sat at their ease on the grass, "'and the third vice-president looked from one to another "'and spoke as follows.' "'My friends, I must tell you the story of the towers. Our king, you must know, is a handsome and amiable man, in appearance about thirty years of age. When I tell you that he has been our king for more than forty years, you will be surprised. His wife was a princess of some few years less than his own, and of a beauty unequaled in the kingdom. Her wedding ring, the gift of her husband, was a single ruby in a plain gold band.' and this ring she was never known to remove from her wedding finger for a single moment. She was blessed with three beautiful children, two boys and a girl, the oldest of whom was nearly nine years of age. When the prince, our present king, was thirty years old, his father the king, who was then alive, gave a great ball at the palace, and at this ball the old king declared to the assembled court that he desired to build a tower, a mighty tower, higher than any other in the world, where he might seek repose from time to time, a tower so tall that it would reach the cloud that hangs perpetually on the mountain. To him who should build such a tower in the shortest time the king would give any reward which the fortunate bidder might ask. The old king laughed as he made his offer, and it was plain that he was only half serious. But many of the richest of his nobility desired the prize, and contended for it earnestly. One proposed to erect the tower in ten years, another in eight, and one was found who was willing to promise it in six years and a half. But these terms were all too long. The king was old, and he would not wait so long. "'Is there no one,' said the king at last, "'who will build me my tower in less than six years and a half?' "'I will build it in one night,' said a voice from the rear of the ballroom. An old man came forward and stood before the king.' an old man, dressed in a short gown tied in with a cord about the middle, with sandals on his feet, a lantern with a lighted candle in one hand, and a staff in the other. No one in that place had ever seen him before, and no one knew how he had gotten in amongst that glittering company. "'I will build your tower in one night,' said the old man. The old king laughed outright, but he accepted the offer then and there. "'In the morning,' said he, If we find the tower finished, you shall have any gift which may be in my power to give. The old man bowed, and made his way slowly out of the palace. A great shout of laughter went up from the company, and in this the king himself joined heartily. But the joke was, as I must tell you, my friends, that in the morning when the king rose, there stood the tower, in fact, behind the palace, so tall that its top could not be seen in the cloud that hung upon the mountain and there, my friends, the tower stands to this day. That evening the old man returned for his reward. He stood before the king, and on the king's right and left stood the prince and the prince's wife and children. The king asked the old man what reward he desired. I ask nothing, replied the other, with a sly smile, except the ruby ring upon the finger of the princess. The princess turned pale and hid her hand behind her, She would not give up her wedding ring. Nothing the king could say could move her. He offered the old man anything else he might demand. A dozen ruby rings, a box of ruby rings, anything. But the old man would have nothing but the ring upon the princess's finger. The princess grew paler still, as if with fear, but she would not give up the ring. The old man smiled his sly smile again and went away. The next morning the princess and her three children were gone, Search was made everywhere, but they were not to be found. The king and the prince, mounting the winding stair of the tower, stopped at last when they were all but exhausted, and at that moment heard a sound of weeping from above. They climbed higher, and on the stair they found the children sitting, huddled together and weeping bitterly. Their mother was gone. They knew not where, and they did not know how they came to be in the tower. The strongest climbers in the city mounted as far as they could ascend, but the top of the tower was far beyond their reach. They found no princess. She has never been seen from that day. Soon after, the old king died, and his son came to the throne. As for him, our present king, and his three children, time stopped for them from the day on which the princess disappeared. They are no older now than when she left them. It is supposed that they are awaiting her return unchanged, in order that she may not find them old on her return. "'if she should still be young. "'There are those who say that she has lived all these years "'and still lives somewhere in some strange form, "'perhaps far from here, bewitched by the old man "'and waiting for release from her enchantment. "'I do not know.' "'And what was her name?' said Aunt Amanda. "'She was named,' said the third vice-president, "'the Princess Miranda.' "'And what are all those other towers in the city?' said Aunt Amanda." It was the fashion, after the king's tower was built, to build towers. The king, as you may suppose, sets the fashion in all things. But no more pleasure towers are built nowadays. The thing had its day and died out. There is a fashion now in pleasure domes. They are modeled after the pleasure dome built by Kublai Khan in Xanadu. Well, said Toby, I don't see what we've got to do with all this. The party I want to see is Shiraz the Rug Merchant. End of chapter 20